0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Just walking through the word here, uh, walking through Luke a little bit at a time. I wish I could say chapter by chapter, but we don't make it through a chapter every week, so get a little long-winded. Anyways, let's go ahead and just pray over the study. Lord, as we just come... uh, Just so desiring for you to speak to us and change us. Uh, Lord, just uh, we understand and we're going to learn even more today about just how your word is our final authority for everything uh, pertaining to life and to godliness, Lord. And so as your word goes out in authority, I just pray that it would uh, pierce hearts and change lives and, and Lord, that we would be conformed to your word. Uh, not vice versa. Lord, we definitely know that your word uh, will never pass away, even though heaven and earth will pass away. And so just do a work. Lord, even, even in the second service, God, we don't want to copy a previous service. We don't want you to work the same way you worked in first service. We just pray you do just the specific work you have in mind for all of those here right now, God. And so just speak by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been cruising through Luke chapter 19, uh, we're in the final week of Jesus's life. Last week, we talked about the triumphal entry and how Jesus had, throughout the book of Luke, had been setting his face toward Jerusalem with a purpose. That purpose being that he might lay down his life for the sins of all mankind so that they could be forgiven of their sins. and, And he constantly was telling the disciples, we're on our way to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed and will be put on trial and will be scourged and crucified and eventually rise from the dead. And so finally, last week in chapter 19, we saw that they finally made it to Jerusalem. And what an entrance it was as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem lowly on, the, on a donkey, and that there was a, a magnificent parade that, uh, that the city put on for him. But uh, we talked about, too, that by the end of the week, those same lips that were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same lips were going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him uh, by Friday that that very week. And so that's about where we are now in uh, each of the gospels is a little bit different. And it's really been a, been a struggle for me because I've taught through Mark a couple of times. I've taught through Matthew a couple of times. I've never taught through Luke before. And so as I read through Luke, I'm like, oh, I just, I love how Matthew adds this to that. Or I love how Mark even even more, you know, and, and so the temptation for me is to just say, Hey, we're not in Luke anymore. You know, we're just doing a gospel comparison as we work our way through. And we may do that a little bit, but, um, the struggle is there because, you know, in Luke where we're at now, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Another gospel says that as he comes into Jerusalem, he walks right up to the temple and he looks around and he just looks in the temple and then he turns around and he walks out and goes back to bethany then he comes back the next day and he cleanses that temple we're we're going to talk about that today you know another gospel puts it that you know he came into jerusalem and he walks right in and he cleanses the temple right then and while those aren't necessarily contradictions to each other uh you you get certain drama from one point of view you get different you know it, it adds so much you know each gospel it has a specific purpose and so here we are, Jesus came in to Jerusalem and in, in Luke's gospel, you know, in between these events, you see the, uh, the, the cursing of the fig tree and, uh, and you know, then the next day the fig trees all dried and withered up from the roots. And so there's other things that happen that other gospels touch on. But here in Luke, it says that verse 45, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And again, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, kind of a parallel passage, says that Jesus came in and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So we've all read this passage before and we kind of just breeze over it, but you know, stop and think a little bit about the magnitude of this situation. You know, imagine if here I am, you know, it's a Sunday morning and I'm teaching and we've got our thing that we do, you know, or whatever. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Don walks up and, you know, pushes me out of the way and throws my podium on the ground and, you know, elbows Stewart in the face and grabs the guitar and be- beats him over the head, and starts chasing all of you out. I mean, that wouldn't be just like, oh yeah, remember, remember that time. No, I'd be like, yeah, you remember that time. What's up with Don? Uh, Don, I'm sorry. I'm picking on you, buddy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the man's a passionate man, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it would definitely be something that the town talks about for a while. Definitely something that uh, you're wondering, you know, what is going on? What is happening here? Um, and, and, you know, Jesus comes in and much in the same way, you turn over a, a monopoly board that you're losing at the game. You're off, ah, forget it. You know, turn the whole table over. You know, Jesus comes in and turns these tables over, makes quite a commotion. That's for sure. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had cleansed the temple. In John chapter two, we see, that, uh, that there's a couple times in Jesus's life that he does this, and perhaps security was on guard as they see Jesus coming into town. But you know, uh, the gospels just they add and they show so much that you know Jesus even made a, a a whip that he wove together right then and there, made it out of cords, you know, and just started driving people. You know, the the men that were selling things, he was driving them out of the temple. He was driving the cattle and the sheep and. Opening up the little doves' cages and letting the, you know, and and all of the animals were running out of, you know, what a scene. Could you imagine the the animals mooing and, you know, and and the whip cracking, you know, and Jesus in a very man from Snowy River style, you know, using his big bull whipping, talking in that Australian accent, you know, crikey, you know, and and, get out of here, you know. That could, might not be how it was, but. We need one more gospel. No, I'm kidding, Lord. I'm totally kidding. Um, You know, but Jesus was basically having a cattle drive here in the temple. And and why would he possibly do that? Why would he do that? That's a little extreme, don't you think? I mean, turning a table over the money changers who sold doves and why would he do that? Well, the doves, you know, the doves were for the poor people that was their sacrifice. And and here we have Passover week, millions of people coming into Jerusalem, you know, to, 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 to make a sacrifice, you know, to, to, cover their sins. And, you know, you got the herdsmen who they have their own sheep. That's no problem. They've got sheep. Then you have the poor people. What are they supposed to sacrifice? Well, the old Testament makes provision for that. They can have a dove, and so here they are, and they're you know, they're trying to buy their little dove for their sacrifice. But the men in the temple that were selling them would inflate the price greatly. You know, Mark's Gospel, chapter eleven, says that he wouldn't allow anyone carrying wares to walk through the temple, and the wares were the 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 um, vessels used in sacrifice. In other words, Jesus stopped all the sacrifices because there was there was thievery going on. People were getting ripped off in the very house of God. And he stopped the sacrifice. Now that in and of itself is is incredible because Jesus did just that by his life. He stopped the sacrifices by his sacrifice. The lamb of God he's called. Revelation tells us that he was the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. He's the lamb that was slain even before he was slain. He's the lamb that not only, you know, the the blood of bulls and goats covers over sin, but Hebrew tells us that the blood of Jesus is much more valuable and that it removes our sin never to be remembered again. And it cleanses our mind from an evil conscience. Maybe you're here today and that sounds oh so good because your conscience is bothering you. You can't sleep at night. You know, David talks about that, you know, when he was in sin is his, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was burdening him. And he says that I made my bed swim. You know, have you ever sinned and you're just in bed at night and you're tossing and turning and you just can't swim. You need to get, you can't swim or you can't sleep. You know, you need to get right with the Lord. You know, he says, I wet my pillow with my tears. And maybe your conscience is just, you don't have a peace, You're worried. You know you need to repent. Well, hey, that's exactly what the Lamb of God, Jesus, came into the world for so that your sins could be washed away and your conscience could be cleansed. So not only did Jesus go into the temple to stop the sacrifices that day, but his whole life was so that the sacrifices might be stopped once and for all because of his perfect sacrifice that he made by his sinless life being uh, sacrificed there on the cross. And so, uh, you know, he, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, every time I've always read this, I've always pictured, you know, it's the big commotion, you know, animals are running out and people, you know, tables are flipped over. People are astounded and that Jesus found some high place somewhere and just started screaming at people, you know, my house is, supposed to be. you know, but what's incredible is that, uh, Mark's gospel tells us that he taught this, that somehow the God man, the meek man, Jesus had strength He was no wimp. You know, the man knew how to braid a whip real quick. You know, who knows how to do that here? Show of hands. Okay, don't show your hand. Uh, You know, he was no wimp. Somehow he was able to go from this might and this power and this authority to a compassion and and just this ability to to calmly teach people. And he did that and he taught them. You know, my house, uh, you know, probably there's some sternness there, but my house is to be a house of prayer. It is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And so his house is a house of prayer. Have we made it anything else? You know, here at Calvary Chapel, Crick County, have we made this a house of entertainment? Have we made it a house of show? You know, or have we made it a house where we're seeking hard after God and we're praying, you know, one of the gospels says that it should be house of prayer for the nations, You know, are we praying for the other countries? We pray hardcore for Prineville here on Thursday nights. Let's start praying for the other nations. Let's cry out to him. Or or is it a place where, you know, I pretty much just come, you know, because the worship's good and the worship's not boring or, you know, or the pastor's boring and that's why I don't go or that's why I do whatever, you know, I go because he's not, whatever. If it's for anything other than just to meet with God, then we need to repent of that. We need to come back to just... That first love, it needs to be a place where we're just loving on God and being loved on by Him. Not to mention the the ecclesia here or the church here, but the temples of our heart. You know, we're told in the New Testament that we're temples of God. He dwells in us. He abides in us. What about these temples that have two legs? You know, mobile homes, if you will. You know, we get around. You know, are we living all out for the Lord. Is this temple a heart of prayer or is it it's for something else? It's for my own pleasures. You know, these living temples need to major in prayer. These living temples, you know, need to influence other nations so that they can know Jesus. But don't miss out on the fact there that God says this is my house, my house. This is not Rory's church. This is not anyone else's church. This is God's church. This is God's house. Kind of chuckling yesterday with my, my wife and my sister-in-law because they were cheerleaders uh, in high school and then at Oregon State. And now my, um, my sister-in-law is a cheerleader for the Blazers. And uh, we're just kind of laughing because back in high school and, and in college, you know, they'd be like, they'd get up on whatever, on someone's arms or however they do it and be like, this is our house, you know, and like everybody like, yeah, this is our house, you know, and is it in my house, not in my house, you know, and I was like, I don't remember being that full of school spirit that I was like, this is my house, you know, it's like I wanted to get out of school, you know, I didn't really, that's the last thing I wanted was to live at school, you know, but you know, Jesus is like goes in there, not in my house, you know, you are not going to be a den of thieves. This is not what this was to be. This is my house, you know, it's to be a house of prayer, you know, and then Solomon in first Kings chapter eight, we were there, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago in our Wednesday night study. And it's a beautiful time when the, the temple was just built and they're dedicating the temple and Solomon built like a seven foot tall platform form in the middle that he addressed the people from And he he says this prayer that's a, a whole chapter long. It's an incredible prayer. But he starts out in his prayer. He lifts his hands to heaven. And by the end of the chapter, he's down on his face. And he's got his arms raised. And he's just crying out to the Lord. And in this prayer, he cries out to the Lord that this temple, this place in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, would be a place where should other armies come to fight against Israel that they would go to the temple and they cry out to the Lord in the temple and God would deliver them or should natural disasters or drought that was brought on by sin come that they would go to the temple and they would cry out and confess their sins and repent you know or if if they were led away in captivity because of their sin and then Solomon says for there is none who does not sin if they're led to another country and they ended up being led away by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians if we're led away and we're in that other country and we realize and it dawns on us that the reason that we're in this other country is because of our sin, that we would pray out from that country. We would turn towards Jerusalem. We would repent from our sins and we would confess our sins and we'd be healed of our sins. And he says, or if a foreigner, someone from some other country hears about the great God who delivered Israel from the Egyptians. And they come to Jerusalem to know this God, that they would be able to come into this house and they would be able to cry out to God and he would hear them there. From the very day of the dedication of the temple in first Kings chapter eight, the house was to be a house of prayer. It was to be a house of mission for the for the Gentiles to come to know Christ. From the beginning of time, God's heart was that Israel would be missionaries to the Gentiles. But because of their hard heart and their religious pride, they began to hate the Gentiles to the point where every Jewish man would wake up in the morning and say, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. You know, wow, that's the heart of a missionary right there, you know. I think that's on Bill James's flyer that he hands out, you know, it's like yeah, we sold our house and now we drive around and that's our prayer. You know, no, that's not that's not good at all. And God says, What does this become? My heart was that this would be a, a house of prayer. That we would be praying for the nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. You know, a place where thieves go and, and hang out. I just saw a Bugs Bunny episode the other day with Russell, you know, he goes where those two big the little tiny thief that's the authoritarian, you know, and then the big dumb thief, you know, and Bugs Bunny. Okay, sorry. uh, Two and a half year old again. It ruins my, um, you know, this is a place where the thieves are just totally comfortable. It's where they hide from the police. Is that what the church has become? Where we can just rip people off and not even have to to give an account for it? And it happens. It happens in the church and it's sobering to me. I, I need to constantly be looking. Is there anything creeping in that's ripping the people off in this body. Because in Jesus's time, you know, the the people would bring their lamb to be sacrificed and the temple inspectors would go up to the lamb and they'd be like, oh, this has a total defect on it. You can't sacrifice this. But don't worry, we've got this lamb over there for a greatly inflated price, but you have to buy it or you're going to die in your sins. You know, shoot. (laughs) Well, let's take our you know theme park money and buy this lamb kids you know you're know, getting ripped off you know hey you'll need a dove well here's one for just totally inflating the price ripping people off and it's sad because they were desperately in need of a covering for their sins so what they were doing wasn't only sin ripping the people off but where they were doing it was a sin they do this in the court of the gentiles where they were to be missionaries to these gentiles but instead they're ripping them off. And so we need to ask ourselves, church leaders need to ask it. And, and, and you guys need to ask yourselves and even what you desire from a church is our house, anything else, but this is our house, a concert hall where the greatest big name musicians come in and play for us. Now, in and of itself, that's not bad, but how quickly it turns from having a a neat brother with an awesome talent come and just lead us into the throne room of God to promotional items and, you know, come, you know, buy my t-shirt for this great inflated price or buy my CD or whatever. and, And there could be good hearts there or so quickly it turns into idolatry. And I get these, you know, Christian CDs in the mail from this, from this company that wants me to plug them. And, uh, just the CD covers just are like, who do these people think they are that they're modeling like this for the camera, you know? And, or, you know, it's kind of this like, (laughs) it's like, does this guy ever act like that normally? (laughs) You know, it's like, wow this guy's awesome, you know? And, you know, one time we had Phil Wickham come and play at our church in Corvallis. And, you know, the girls were like, we love you, Phil. And it's like, what? What is going on here? You know? And then a line that went clear through the church to get his autograph. And the girl, I touched him. He touched me on my arm. Oh my gosh, I'm never watching this shirt again. You know, I don't think you've ever watched that shirt. Yeah, but now I'm not doing it for a reason, you know? <laughs> and total idolatry. And I was just convicted and I was like, I didn't even talk to him. I, care about you. you know, um, no, not really. I actually gave him a sweatshirt. But anyways, um, I gave him my shirt. Um, so how quickly it turns into idolatry. And, you know, there's a place for it. And you just have to have a right heart, you know, and constantly be checking yourself. And, uh, you know, Jesus, this was the second time he cleansed the temple. And in other words, regularly, we need to check our hearts make sure that we're in the right place where we have hearts that just want to meet with God and know God and be known by him. And then verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, but they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to him. And so, you know, for a couple days, Jesus was just in there teaching. It was kind of like a a retreat there with Jesus. What an awesome couple of days to be there in the temple. Beautiful time. You know, God incarnate for the first time receiving worship in the temple. Incredible place for you. Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, verse 14. It says that the, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. And the children would come to him and they'd cry out, you know, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. But the chief priests and the scribes, it says that they were indignant. Do you hear what these little kids are saying about you? And that's when Jesus says, you know, have you not uh, read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've perfected praise. And so the people, you know, and the least likely people, I mean, here's a guy that just Chased all a bunch of people out of the temple and had a whip and all this stuff. And here the blind and the lame, really the outcasts and the children, they're coming and they're just being loved on by this guy who's just mighty and powerful and yet compassionate. And uh, it's just a, a beautiful thing uh, to see that. And, uh, you know, his teaching just being covered in love. And so they were astounded by his teaching. They just couldn't get enough of him. Except for the scribes, and the Pharisees, they, they didn't want to have anything of it. And then uh, verse chapter 20, verse 1, now it happened on one of those days as he taught in the, t- uh, the people in the temple and preached the gospel, <clears throat> that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, uh, confronted him. Now, it was Passover week, and before the slaying of the Passover lamb, there was a four day exam of the sacrificial animal to make sure that it was spotless and without blemish. And so here we're going to see Jesus being uh, grilled and examined by the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and, And eventually the outcome is going to be that even the Roman Pontius Pilate lifts up his hands and says, I find no fault in this man. He's perfect but they kill him anyway. He he's found spotless and he's slain for the sins of the world. But the people here were absolutely transfixed on him, hanging on his every word. Chapter 19 verse 48 says, therefore the religious leaders wanted to hang him. You know, they wanted the attention. They wanted the glory. They wanted, you know, they didn't like this no name preacher from Galilee being there. And so it says in those days, he began to preach and to teach Now notice in those days, what days is, what day, what days is this is how we talk in Lakeview, but, um, you know, there are not many days left in those days. There was only five days left from the triumphal entry. So in other words, it's the middle of passion week. It's probably Wednesday here. It's the last days of Jesus life. And actually the last day of his, his full blown ministry in Israel. It's the last days of his mission to the Jews and, and his warnings to the Pharisees. And he's, what is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. You might underline that. He, he spent his last day preaching the gospel. You know, how would he do that, I wonder? Well, as you look in a couple chapters, a couple weeks, we'll be there in Luke chapter 24, uh, he meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, you know, they didn't even realize it was Jesus talking to them. he just risen from the dead. They didn't know it was him. But as they began to talk, it says that he, uh, you know, he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered with these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, listen to this, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets He expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Have you ever taught a Bible study about yourself? Hopefully not. Only Jesus has done that. You know, he's like, this is incredible. This is what he did in the temple. He's just like, hey guys, open up your Bibles to Genesis. Check it out. Yeah, it's talking about me. Hey, Exodus, check it out. Talking about me. Leviticus, yep, talking about me. Hey, the temple, the tabernacle, all the gold rings, all the veils, all this stuff. I did this, I did that, I did this. And the cool thing is to the, road, the guys on the road of Emmaus, he had just risen from the dead and he was able to, to have them look back on his life and say, look how I fulfilled everything of the whole of the scriptures it's written of me, Jesus says. What an incredible Bible study to be at. And so there he was in the temple and the lame are coming and everything. And he just says, you know, like he did in Luke chapter four, when he read Isaiah, he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. I'm fulfilling it right now. Right now, you're watching scripture being fulfilled right now, right now, 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 (laughs) you know, it's, it's all being fulfilled. And so very exciting as Jesus preached the gospel. So What's the main thing that you can do on your last day? Let's say you're given two days to live. It's the last week of your life. What are you going to do? You know, preach the gospel like Jesus did. Contrary to what Tim McGraw says, you know, he says, I went skydiving. I went Rocky mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. You know, he had he had his bucket list, you know, and maybe you've got yours for when you kick the bucket, you know, it's like, oh well, I gotta go skydiving and I gotta get I gotta grow a ponytail and I gotta get a earring and you know, or whatever. And it's like all of that stuff is chaff. It's all fading away. Let your bucket list be I wanna tell people about Jesus. Like my dying breath, I wanna be telling people about Jesus. Forget having my family around my deathbed. Get the nurses in here right now. Get the doctors in here and shut the door and lock it. And until I die, they're going to hear it. Sorry, <laughs> you're in here for an ingrown toenail. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I still want to hear what I have to say. Um, you know, the story's told of a young pastor, much like myself, who uh, went, you know, and, and was at his first church and it was almost his first Sunday teaching And so he wrote a letter back to his pastor back at home and and he said, you know, hey, got any advice on what to preach for my first sermon? And the letter came back in the mail that Saturday and it said, preach Jesus and preach 20 minutes. (laughs) And so, hey, we're trying to get that done around here at Calvary Chapel. We're preaching Jesus. We're working on the 20 minutes part, but that's not necessarily biblical. So, you know, but preach the Bible biblically. He preaches the Bible. Does he preach it biblically? Am I preaching it biblically? Man, I strive to, I don't want to just use a a verse to springboard off of all sorts of politics stuff or anything like that. I want to teach the Bible biblically in all of its context and all of its intent. And notice with Jesus, every sermon with him was evangelistic in implication. Everything he would say, people were confronted that they were at a crossroads and that today I need to make a chance that I, I need to make a decision that I'm either for Jesus or I'm against Jesus. Because Jesus says that those are the two options. You're either for me hundred percent. I'm your Lord. Everything that you are is me. And if not, you're my enemy and you're going to be judged by me. And so here he is, he's preaching, preaching the gospel And so the uh, chief priests and the scribes come together at the end of verse one there and with the elders and they confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So we have Jesus preaching the gospel, got proclamation confronted by a delegation conducting an investigation And they said, who are these, you know, who gave you the authority to be doing these things? What things? What things? Well, let's start with you riding in on that little donkey last Sunday, trying to fulfill. Well, actually, okay. You did fulfill Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. And you, okay. You did fulfill Daniel chapter nine to the day that it was prophesied that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Shoot. But who gave you authority to do this? You know, nobody else even did it actually. Hmm. But well, who gave you the authority to do it? For first of all, first of all, and, and who gave you the authority to make yourself a bullwhip and come in the temple and turn over all the temp, you know the, the tables? Who gave you that authority? Who gives you the authority to be here teaching, you know, and preaching the kingdom of God? And you know, so it says Jesus. Got all? Well, I don't need to tell you nothing. I'll tell you. Nothing. You know, no, You know, Jesus is so cool in, in the way that he answers. These questions here, but you know. But first of all, before he even answers, and his answer is awesome. We just see that you know they want Jesus's credentials. They want to know who he was ordained by. They wanted to see that certificate of ordination. You know, Paul says, "I'm an apostle ordained not by men, but by God." And uh, you guys can go into my office right now. You won't see a special little frame hanging on the wall with an ordination certificate. And I also don't have a certificate of completion from my Bible college. And I say all that in humility, uh, cause I got kicked out. No, I, I didn't, it's a long story. Um, but you know, by God's grace, he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. And there are many guys who have those certificates. And that's awesome that men sent them out and gave them that my guys, we ran out of paper in the copy machine. And so they just didn't do it. But, um, but you know, they wanted to see Jesus's credentials, and their investigation here is a thin disguise for their opposition. They didn't come with a genuine heart. It's like, man, this is incredible. Hey, you know, how did you get to do all this? You know, who gave you the authority? This is just incredible. No, they they were sly. Their questions full of cynicism, but the answer they don't want to know, anyways, because it demands that they get off their religious thrones and kneel before Christ. These guys were know-it-alls and they thought they knew best. They didn't need anyone to tell them anything. It's funny though. Mr. Know-it-all is the same person who claims to be open-minded about everything. And these guys are totally completely shut off to the answer to their question. And so the basis of their opposition, it didn't lie within their intellect, wanting to know the answer, but it lied within their will whether or not they were going to bow their knee to Jesus. And they had a, an iron will, as it is. And uh, <clears throat> man, the, the religious, you know, they wanted to know what authority Jesus did this. And it's just the, the religious system in Palestine in the first century, it's the same as it is here in America, here in 2009. Hard-hearted, even within Christian American Christian churches, hard-hearted, not wanting to to bow down to the word of God and to the authority of the word of God or the authority of the gospel. And that's just so sad because, man, when you realize what book you're holding in your hand and you realize who wrote this book and you realize all that it's, it's you know, between these pages, between these covers, then, man, you can't help but just to bow the knee to the authority of the word of God. And to let it shape your life and your culture. Right now, the world, the world and churches and people, and I even know people that call themselves Christians. And some of them, I believe they're Christians, but they're on a, they're on a slippery slope right now. They're allowing culture uh, and the times to shape their lives and their, and their faith rather than letting the word of God shape their faith and their lives. And that is so, so dangerous. You know, it's uh it's incredible how people look at this book now, the you know, and, and this is our authority now in 2009. Uh, they look at it as simply being a religious book of human insight rather than being the inspired revelation of God. And there's a verse that you should memorize and it's 2 Timothy 3:16 and it should be right up there with John 3:16, it's an easy way to remember the reference, but it's that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is the Greek word theopneustos, which means literally that God breathed out the scriptures. It came out of his lips. He spoke it out. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for training and correcting and rebuking and equipping uh, and, and instruction in all righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped and ready for every good work. That's what is in this book right here. The very breath of God. You know, first or second Peter chapter one verse twenty and twenty one says that no scripture has come from private interpretation. You know, and there's a lot of that out there today. People saying, well, this is how I think this verse should be read. Hey, buddy, you got to look at the whole context of scripture and the character of God. And I'm telling you right now, that's not what that says. Or, well, I went down to the Christian bookstore and I wrote my own book and I have it for sale down there at the Christian bookstore. And there's crazy books for sale down there. I don't know about this one, but many Christian bookstores. And it's like, well, I wrote my own Bible. You know, it's like, well, no prophecy of scriptures is given by private interpretation. But then it goes on to say, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy spirit. Well, the Bible was just written by a bunch of guys that were high on opium, a bunch of crazy guys. It was like, well, let's write something. You know, that's not what happened. Holy men of God spoke or wrote as they were moved or carried along by the Holy spirit. That's where this came from. Men of God who were spending time with God and God counted them faithful and used them as tools and as instruments. And he incorporated their personalities into the text. He incorporated their lives and their stories, but he incorporated his truth as well. That's what's so incredible about the Bible. And so if it's just to you, a religious book of human insight, then you might as well just join the Mormons right now. Because if you watch their commercials, you get a free Holy Bible for, you know, whatever, if you call the number or whatever, why would they be giving away the Holy Bible? It incriminates them. Well, because to them, it's just a religious book of human insight. But to us, it's the authority. It's the authority of God. And we hold to its every word. It never changes. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means ever pass away. And so I stand alone on the word of God as the child, as the children's song says, the B-I-B-L-E. It's our authority. And so I think that that's what Jesus would have told these men if they really had been reasonable inquirers. If they would have had an open heart to hear, he would have opened up the book and he would have shown them how it all points to him. But they didn't have that heart. And so Uh, you know, so Jesus in verse three answers them the the question. He answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? You got to love this about Jesus, Jesus answering questions with questions. I'm trying to master that. I'm trying to get that down. I don't think I've been able to do it once yet, but man, wouldn't that be cool? Well, how do you feel about this? Well, how do you feel about this? (laughs) You know? Why are you answering my questions? Why are you answering my questions with a question? You know, um, obviously, I'm a little rusty at it. But you know, he, he asks, answers a question with a question to get a little... It, it gets you examining yourself. Well, how do you feel about this then? Oh, gosh, I don't know. You know and, and So easy, you could catch yourself in a contradiction or something like that. So he wants them to examine themselves. And he asks them about John the Baptist. Was, was John the Baptist's ministry of baptism? Was it from men or was it from God? He asked them this question because the answer to his question is the answer to their question. The answer is it was from God. You know, uh, John the Baptist is an incredible prophet who, you know, had the spirit of Elijah upon him. And, you know, the authority of John and the authority of Jesus were interwoven together. And so they were answering the question if they would answer it. But verse five and six, it says that and they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they didn't just answer the question right then and there. Well, you know, I think it was, it was from the Lord, you know, but oh, shoot, oh hey, they got together in like a little holy huddle here and you know, they were like, I told you not to answer that, ask that stupid question. Oh, of course, there's so many loopholes in that one. Oh yeah, well, why don't you just ask the question? You know, and they probably got a little miffed at each other. And then they finally turn around after a little discussion and they say, you know, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know, but they did know. But notice their reasoning. What was their reasoning as they were trying to figure all of this out? They didn't care what the truth was. They only cared about what men thought. You know, what if there would have been one guy in that holy huddle? Well, you know, guys, come on. Of course, John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven. You know, we might just have to humble ourselves and say, wow, we were wrong. But, you know, I don't think there was one guy there. And they all just hardened their heart and turned around and lied and said, I don't know. But the truth is for you guys here today and for the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders back in Jesus's day and for me If you're saying today, I don't know about Jesus, I don't know about God, I don't know about this faith of Christianity, you're lying to yourself right now. You're lying to yourself. In fact, you do know. And there is enough evidence out there that you do know. And you're smart enough to know that all of the evidence jams you into a corner that you need to to believe in Jesus, but you don't like that corner. You want to keep living for yourself and for your own pleasures and passing pleasures of sin. There's a man named Thomas Huxley who lived back in England in the 1800s, and he was known as Darwin's bulldog defending evolution. But Thomas Huxley, you got to give him props for one thing. He said this, I chose not to believe in God because it was for me, my unbelief, a means of political and sexual liberation. In other words, I want to do what I want to do. And if I believe in a God, I can't do that anymore because he's a God of righteousness and of standards. And he demands my whole life. And frankly, I don't want to give it to him. So I'm just going to lie to the whole world and tell him we came from apes. You know, when I was 14 years old, I, I took kind of a, a biology class. that was way too high for me. Uh, I did horrible in it but I was a little firebrand for Christ in it. You know, maybe that's why the Lord had me in there because this biology teacher, you know, total evolutionist. And I just asked him, I was like, Hey, check out all this evidence for a creator. You know, what do you have to say about this? And, and there were a couple other Christians in the class and we wouldn't let him get away with it. You just constantly, almost every day, just what about this? What about this? And he just, he would say, I choose not to believe in a God because if I believe in a God, I can't believe in science and I want to keep living my life the way that I, that I have it. Well, that's a lie. You know, you can believe in science and believe in God. Because science points to God, but that's a whole another Bible study for a whole different man uh, to teach. But if today you're going to say, I don't know, hey, quit lying to yourself, quit lying to God and quit lying to us. And why don't you just say, I do know, but I reject God because I want to live the way I want to live. And I don't have to answer to him that way. It's a lie because you will have to answer to him, but at least maybe you can hide your conviction for a little while. So do you choose not to believe in God and use agnosticism or atheism uh, as as some sort of a costume, some sort of a disguise? And Jesus said, you know, these these men won't listen to Moses and the prophets. They're not going to listen. Should one even rise from the dead? Whatever answer Jesus would have given these guys, they wouldn't have heard it because their hearts were so hard, and they'd chosen the god of themselves rather than the god of the Bible. Right here, they weren't conducting an investigation. They had gotten some sort of opposition together, you know, some sort of a mob to try and catch Jesus so that they could throw him in jail or kill him. And so with these men, the issue wasn't of the mind, of the intellect, but it was an issue of the will. They didn't want to bow the knee to Jesus. It wasn't a challenge of the the mind. It was a challenge of morals for them. They didn't want to allow God to change their lives at all. And and we're just about to close, but flip over to Romans chapter one, verse 20. Everybody flip there. We're just about to close. It's a good, good section here in scripture. Romans chapter one, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and creepy things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of a woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, whether you're an Oregonian in Prineville or whether you're an Aborigine in Australia, every man knows in their heart that there is a God. And they know the character of God in their heart. And you can look at creation. You can look at the most beautiful night sky. You can look at the most beautiful canyon. You can look at anything in creation and it testifies of God's handiwork. It testifies of who he is. But men like Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley and maybe even you today reject that in their heart. It says they suppress the truth in their heart and exchange it over for a lie. Why? because they want sin. They want sexual immorality. They want that sexual pleasure. They want to be a gossiper. They want to be violent. They want to be proud. They want to be disobedient to parents. I mean, there's sins in that list of depravity that it's like, oh, murder. Oh, homosexual. Oh goodness. Disobedient to parents. Is that really that bad? It's a sign of a depraved mind. It's a sign of someone who needs Jesus. And every single one of us has a different vice or different struggles or temptations that are on that list. And every single one of us, every time we struggle, we need to give it up to God, not suppress the truth in our hearts. And these men that Jesus was talking to this day, they suppress the truth of God in their hearts so that they could keep living in their proud religious state. But man... The end of that Roman section is, is scary. That those who do these things or even, or even approve of them in their heart are deserving of death. And not just deserving of death. Multiple passages in scripture show us that they will die that spiritual death. And so they hardened their heart. They didn't turn to Jesus and they didn't answer his question. And so there it says in verse eight. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love that Jesus kept his end of the bargain here, because remember the deal was, all right, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. They didn't answer his question, so he just didn't answer theirs. He answered their question with that question, but they refused to hear it. So I'm not going to give you any more answer there. And that's such a good little thing for us to see Because in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, don't give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. It's incredible that you have a heart to share Jesus, but very often you'll run into people that just want to argue with you. They just want to take your time. They want to make you look like a fool. And I would even say that they've been put in your path By Satan to distract you from the true harvest that's out there that's ready. You know, you need to, as you share your faith, use discernment in your heart as to when this conversation is over. Because these men are opposed to Christ and they're not going to soften their heart. The Holy Spirit will tell you when that time is. And don't be afraid to even just be blunt and sharp and say, you know what? This conversation is over. Your heart is too hard. You're not going to see the truth. You're rejecting the truth. Say all that to them. But if you just stay there, you're just going to get wore down and they're going to trample you and tear you up and chew you out and spit you out and all that stuff. You got to use discernment when you're sharing your faith. And I just love that, that Jesus uses discernment. He, you know, he didn't put up with it and we don't need to either, but we'll go ahead and close there to this morning or noon or whatever it is. I don't know. And uh, go ahead and close your Bibles and Set them aside and we'll just close this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are in this place with us. And Lord, that your eyes are going to and fro throughout the whole world and even this congregation searching for those hearts that are loyal to you, that you might show yourself strong on their behalf. And Lord, there's a lot of hearts in this room. There's a lot of wills in this room. And Lord, we just pray, and and all believers in this room right now, we pray that you would soften hearts. Soften the proud, Lord. Soften those that have been suppressing the truth in their hearts and have been exchanging it for a lie. Lord, we soften our hearts and just confess that, man, there's times when the church isn't a place for prayer. It's not a place for seeking you and knowing you and hearing from you. We confess idolatry in the Christian music world and and even how we raise pastors up to places in our hearts where they should never be. They're just men that are just trying to serve you. They're fallible. They they mess up. They fail us. and I'll fail these people, Lord. I never want to be a some sort of an idol, Lord. Lord, wherever we've made this house just a house of entertainment or a house of pleasure or anything like that, Lord, we, we confess that to you and we just pray it would just go back to its rightful place. Just as we sang, Lord, keep our heart pure and our ways true as we follow you. Keep us humble. We'll stay mindful as we follow you. For those in this room that they would say when they came in those doors, I don't know. I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about following him. And just every week it's, I don't know. I don't know. When they're lying, Lord, and they do know. And the truth is that they either need to choose you today or reject you today. It's not an I don't know thing. If that's you today and you've been playing that game with God, oh, I don't really know. Show me some sort of sign, God, and I'll follow you. And Jesus says, even if someone were to raise from the dead in front of you and show you something, you wouldn't believe because you need to humble yourself And if that's you today, man, I plead with you. Just recognize your poor state before God, that you're a sinner, that you need him. Yeah, you've messed up in the past and man, his mercies are new today for you. He wants to forgive you and cleanse you. Just make you a new creation today. He wants to forgive you of your past and he wants to forget your past. But you need to choose him today. He's chosen you today. Will you choose him? And I just plead with you today to respond to him. And I just want to put a call out there to those that You don't know Jesus. You've never known Jesus. But today you want to know Jesus. And you want to be made right. You want to be made new. You want to be clean before Him. Today you can be because Jesus died on the cross. His blood was spilt. His sinless, perfect blood was was shed for you And as he hung on that cross, he thought of your face and your name. And that the Sunday after Thanksgiving in 2009, you would give your life over to him and that blood would cover your sins. And if that's you today and you you want Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to respond. You've never accepted him before into your life, but today you will. And I just want to ask you to lift up your hand. And just say, Rory, that's me. Will you pray for me? Is there anybody at all? I've been lying to God. I've been lying to myself. I've been saying I don't know when I do know. In fact, right now you know the Holy Spirit is pulling on your heart. And you know that you need to give your life to Him today. Is there anybody at all? Please don't reject him like these men did, not wanting to hear the truth. Well, anytime during this last song, if that is you, man, the beautiful thing is you don't, have, you don't even have to raise your hand to come to Jesus. You just give Him your heart right where you're at. Give Him your life. And you can do that right now. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378 Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.